Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Well, back in in the 70s, Pixar came onto the scene um, as a graphics company. In the 80s, they were purchased by Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple. And then in the 2000s, Disney purchased Pixar for $7.4 billion, right? And so they produced movies like WALL-E and Toy Story and Finding Nemo. I'm not quite sure if this DVD is just stuck in our, the Martin family minivan, but the movie Cars, Pixar. And I've, I've listened to that movie a thousand times, never seen it, but I've heard it from the back of the van a lot. I'm like, what does Owen Wilson look like? Don't know. But Pixar does stories with excellence. And one of the, one of the things that they've shown is they've just kind of laid out, here's how we tell stories. And so they have what they call the story spine, right? The spine, the backbone of their stories begin with once upon a time. It's just setting the scene of, of what the story is going to be. And then there's every day and the every day is building up the characters. There's character buildup until one day. And that's when things begin to change. And then you have consequences because of that. And then because of that, until finally. And so they've just laid out, here's how our stories work, but there are other elements as well. They have elements of surprise, things that you wouldn't expect. They have elements that are meant to appeal to our deepest emotions. They wanna give us an underdog, someone to cheer for. And then on top of all of that, they ruthlessly cut things to make sure that the story is simple and focused. But you don't make $7.4 billion unless you are really good at telling stories. Well, today we're going to talk about the story of Jesus. And think about Jesus. He never had a marketing firm. He never had money. He never had the internet. I mean, he didn't have the things that we have, yet more songs have been sung to him. More books have been written about him. More paintings of him. More lives dedicated to him than any other figure in human history. I mean, he's the most towering figure ever. And so when we talk about Jesus, is this just another fairy tale story? Is this just a story that should inspire us to be better people, better contributing members to society? Or is this stuff true? Because if it's true, then that means it changes everything. That means that our eternity hinges on who he is and what he came to do and how we respond to it. So let's talk about Jesus. In Matthew 16, we get this kind of midway point of Jesus's life. Throughout his life, people have been asking the question, who is Jesus? And people are saying he's a miracle worker, he's a great teacher, and the buzz is kind of around town. And so he pulls his disciples together and he asks the questions. Let's pick up in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is. In other words, when you're out in the street, when you're just doing life in town, when people, if you ask someone, who is Jesus, what would they say? What would be, what would be the word on the street, okay? And so people respond, or the disciples respond, they said, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so the word on the street is that Jesus is someone that's no longer living on this earth again, that's come back to life, right? So that, that John the Baptist has been beheaded. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Elijah was taken off in a chariot of fire. Like, like all that to say, word on the street is that Jesus is some type of ghost prophet, all right? It's like, he's a ghost. And if you go through other scriptures, you'll see different responses to the question, who is Jesus? His family, in Mark chapter three, people are pressing in around him to hear him teach. And his mom's like, go get Jesus because he's lost his mind. If you've lost your mind, that means you are crazy. So word on the street, he's a ghost. His family thinks he's crazy. Religious leaders in John chapter eight, they're debating with Jesus. They're, they're, they're in conflict with him. And they're like, are we not right in saying that you have a demon? So the religious leaders think that Jesus is demonically possessed. Then speaking of demons, as you go through the gospels, the demons are always like, you're the son of God. And he's like, don't tell anybody, all right? But like demons have better theology than anybody, okay? And so this, this question about who is Jesus has been going on for 2,000 years. And so Jesus continues this conversation. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, you're my disciples. You do life with me. You know the way that I respond when I stub my toe. Like you've seen me after a night where I didn't get great sleep. You've seen me at my best. You've seen me at my worst. You've seen the miracles I performed. You've heard the words that I taught. Who do you say that I am, right? And Simon Peter replied, so Peter jumps to the front of the classroom, and I love this. A couple of weeks ago, I was helping out with my son's second grade class for a test. And so I sat in the classroom as the teacher was getting them ready. And the teacher goes, who knows what a sentence is? My son, like hands straight up. He's like, I got this. And he's like, he talks for 30 seconds and gets nowhere. And it's like, I don't think he knows what a sentence is. All right? um, but that's Peter. He's first to respond. He's like, I got this. All right? So Peter jumps to the front of the classroom to respond. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the savior of the world. You're the one that everything in scripture has been looking forward to. All of history has been leading to you, all right? And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, all right? And so two, for 2,000 years, People, people have been asking the question, who is Jesus? And the truth is, is that every world religion has an answer. If you were to talk to someone who is a Mormon, they would say that he was God's first spirit child. If you were to talk to a Jehovah Witness, they would say he is a God, lowercase g, but not the God, capital G. If you talk to a Hindu, they might tell you that he was an enlightened teacher, if you talk to a Muslim, they will say that he was a prophet like Muhammad, but he is not God. Other people would say that he's a crazy man or he was a liar or somewhere in between, but everybody has an opinion on who Jesus is. So who's to say that we're right and all these other religions are wrong? And that, that seems pretty arrogant on our part. Like we got it. You guys all got it wrong. So how in the world do we know if we're right and other people are wrong? Well, the apostle Paul, okay, um, he was a terrorist, 
right? He was a terrorist to the early church and one of Jesus's biggest enemies. He converted to Christianity. Now to know the significance of that, that would be Osama bin Laden becoming Billy Graham, okay? And that's an understatement. How do you get Osama bin Laden to become Billy Graham other than the power of the cross? So Paul, who writes the majority of the New Testament, says it all hinges on the resurrection. If the tomb is empty and the resurrection is true, then Christianity is 100% right. And the only way to a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. But if the resurrection is false, if it didn't happen, if there is a pile of bones somewhere that we could discover, then Christianity is 100% wrong and someone else is right. So the question that that we have, because this is a sticking point for a lot of people in in our culture, is, is the resurrection. Is it ridiculous or is it reasonable? Is believing that Jesus rose from the dead, is it ridiculous like believing that a tooth magically disappears from under your pillow and money just shows up? Or is it reasonable to believe? Because if it's reasonable, okay, then what Jesus says is the most important thing we could ever respond to in our lives. So how do we know whether or not it's reasonable? It all comes down to the evidence. We have to investigate the evidence. And so where do we find evidence, right? Well, well, one place that we're gonna find evidence is scripture. And look, I wanna show my cards here because I, I love talking to people who are skeptical about the Christianity thing. And if I say scripture and you're a skeptic or you're, you're doubting this, you're gonna say, that seems a little biased. And I would say, yes, it does seem a little bit biased, but I want us to be fair, okay? When we're investigating whether or not this is true, we need to be fair. So if we're doing an investigation to try to discover how are drugs being smuggled across the border into America, and we find someone on the inside, is their testimony evidence that deserves to be weighed, or do we write them off as biased? If we're trying to uncover a massive scandal that's happening within a corporation and we find someone that's inside the corporation and get their testimony, is their testimony evidence that deserves to be weighed or do we write it off because it's biased? We, we don't treat insider information as biased in any other investigation. So to give that and grant that to other investigations and then write it off for Christianity seems to me to be a double standard. Right? And so I think we at least have to take the testimony of those on the inside through scripture and add it to the pile of evidence to be investigated. Right? So it, let's at least say it deserves to be in the conversation. But if you're saying, I just can't, I need more, there is good news. If you're saying, I need more than just what scripture says, if we were to go back to Jesus's time, okay, we go back to Jesus's time, there are over 15 over 15 credible historians who are not Christians, who are not mentioned in the Bible, who have all reported on the life of Jesus. 15 historians, Greeks, Romans, Jews. And so if you were just to investigate who these historians are and what they wrote, you could read of Cornelius Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. And he reports on this mysterious new group that rapidly spread from Judea to Rome. 
and how this mysterious group was now being persecuted by Nero, but what they went through under Nero was nothing compared to what their founder went through for the Christus or Christ was crucified. Right, so that's a Roman historian writing of Jesus being crucified and the evidence of his followers spreading from Judea all the way to Rome. Another person is Lucian of Samosta. Right, this was a Greek skeptic who despised Christians. Right, we have a Roman, now we have a Greek, and he writes of a man named Jesus who was crucified and how he was worshiped by his followers as God. So there's another guy, a Greek. Then you have Josephus, who was a Jewish guy, probably about the same age as Jesus. And so Josephus, a Jew in the same area as Jesus, wrote of Jesus as being good and virtuous, a dynamic teacher who was crucified, who his followers said resurrected and also declared to be or proclaimed to be the Messiah. And so if we start to take these 15 credible historians from Jesus's time and piecing things together, we start to gather facts, right? Historical facts that in any other science or any other realm of history would be considered worth weighing and and deserving of a verdict or something we have to do something with. All right, so the facts that we gather from these other historians outside of scripture is that Jesus was real. Jesus wasn't a mythological person like Elsa and Anna. Like he was a real person who existed. We also know that historically he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. So under Roman rule, he was crucified. We know that he was put into a tomb, right? He was laid into a tomb and that the tomb was found empty, right? There was an empty tomb. And we also know the fifth fact is that his followers claimed to have seen him in bodily form after the crucifixion. Right? So we have five historical facts that whether we are Christians or not, we have to do something with. We have to make sense of whether or not these things are true or not, okay? And so when we look at these facts, some people would say, look, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he just, he passed out from the pain. Then he woke up in like a Buried Alive Netflix series and was like, ah, you know, like woke up, rolled back the stone, all of a sudden had the strength to fight off Roman guards. And then he went from being the most moral teacher ever to becoming a liar and starts telling his disciples that he really is God and came back from the dead and like, and we should trust him with our lives. Like, is that reasonable? Okay, well, think about this. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians and the Medes. Um, It was perfected by the Romans. They were known as masters of execution. All right, for the crucifixion, it began with a flogging, a brutal, brutal, brutal beating. Not just 39 lashes. We're talking about skin ripped off, organs potentially exposed, bones broken. Some people died just from the flogging and never made it to the cross. After that, Jesus is forced to carry the crossbeam of his cross. The cross could have either been like a capital T or a lowercase t. We assume that it's probably the lowercase t shape because a sign was nailed over his head, right? But he was to carry that crossbeam 40 to 60 pounds, okay? He's carrying this crossbeam. Now, if you're strapped to a crossbeam and you fall, can you catch yourself? No, right? Under the weight of that cross, Jesus falls to the ground because he's severely dehydrated. He's been severely beaten. He's extremely um, exhausted. And, And so doctors would say the weight 
of 60 pounds falling on your back as your chest hits the ground would be like hitting the steering wheel in a high impact car crash with no airbag. Okay, that alone could have, could have collapsed his lungs or bruised his heart, okay? Then he goes to the cross where he is fastened to the upright beam, nailed to it, right? Given a little piece of wood where he can press up to get some breath, only to then come back down from the pain of the nails, right? And then this was to keep people from suffocating too soon. And after that, if you live too long, they would come and break your legs to speed up the process so that you would suffocate to death. And so they show up to break Jesus's legs, discover he's already dead. And a Roman soldier takes a spear, drives it into his side, piercing his heart. Out comes blood and water, right? Then they take him off the cross and lay him in a tomb. You don't just wake up from that. You're not like, oh, what happened? Like, like you don't just show up to people and convince them you're okay. Like you're looking jacked up, but like, he, like he's dead. Romans didn't botch this, all right? So Roman soldiers killed him. Well, so if he was dead, then, then how do we make sense of the empty tomb? Well, maybe, maybe the followers stole his body. That was probably the most popular theory after Jesus's death was that the disciples stole the body, right? And then you have to ask yourself, well, what were the disciples like after his crucifixion? They're not heroic. They're all cowards. They're fleeing for their lives. It doesn't seem like they're in a mindset where they're ready to fight off Roman soldiers at the tomb, okay? And people will die for a lie that they believe to be true, but people won't die horrific deaths for a lie that they know is a lie, right? And so I don't know if it makes sense to believe that they stole the body. Plus, if anybody could have found the body, any Roman soldier, any Jewish skeptic, anyone, if they could have produced the body, Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. Another option is this. Jesus is who he said he is. He did what he would say he would do, that he would die and rise again and that the tomb is empty because the resurrection is true. Some of the historical evidence we have to add to this is the fact that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses after the crucifixion. Over 500 people who were still alive during the time that the New Testament was being written where it's saying, go talk to these eyewitnesses. Go talk, and there's specific names, like go talk to Rufus. It's like, why did they name me that, dad? Like, like go, talk to, go talk to these people and investigate it for yourself. And some people would say, maybe they hallucinated, right? Maybe these, these disciples had a, a crazy psychedelic experience and they were hallucinating and they, all, they, they, they legit thought they saw him. The problem with the hallucination idea is that hallucinations, from what I've been told, um, are not unified um, group experiences, but they are unique individual experiences, so if we, if we loaded up on some 55-passenger buses, a couple of them, we drove to Colorado and got some special gummies, like this gummy bear, and like we're having experiences. Like I might see Tupac, you might see Elvis. You might ride on a, like a, a clown that flies, and I might ride on a dragon. Who knows? But if we're having this experience, it's not unified. It's going to be unique to the individual. So 500 people don't have the same hallucination. Another interesting thing to the eyewitnesses, and I think this is worth mentioning, is that if you're making a story up, which some people have said this is all made up, if you're making a story up, you're stacking the evidence in your favor. 
If you're making a story up that you want people to believe is true, you will stack the cards in your favor, right? So what's interesting is the first witnesses to Jesus's resurrection are women. In this time, a woman's testimony was not considered credible if it was held against a man's testimony. It didn't matter whether one was true and one was another. It's just the sheer fact that she was a woman, her word was not as credible. And so if Christianity is being made up and you're trying to stack the cards in your favor, you are going to make the first witnesses that of a man to give a more credible testimony. But the fact that scripture records things as they are lends itself to, to a, a non-fictional style of writing. It's just, it doesn't fit fiction. It, it doesn't make sense to make the first witnesses women if you're trying to make this story up. So Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses. Then another thing that's interesting is the dates of the New Testament writings, they're close enough to the actual events that if they weren't true, they could easily be debunked. Like, think about this. If I told you that my dad had to go fight in Desert Storm, it's like I was in second grade and my dad just had to go off for a couple of months and fight this mustache dude named Saddam. Like you might be like, that sounds a little crazy, Jeff. Like let's say there was no media, like no books had been written on this yet, but like, and you're saying, Jeff, it sounds ridiculous that people went and fought in a bunch of oil fields in Iraq. I don't believe you. Because that was within 30 years, right, of the actual events, you could find eyewitnesses that were on the ground. You could go to the actual location and find like the remnants of old tanks and things that were still there. And you could build a case to find whether or not I'm full of it or whether that is a true war that happened. The same thing is true of the New Testament. It was written close enough to the actual events that if you wanted to investigate it, you could go and find people who were there and talk to actual Roman soldiers who were part of the crucifixion. You could find people who were close to Jesus's family. You could go to locations where miracles were worked. You could go and investigate it and find out whether it was true or not for yourself. You see, something that differentiates Christianity from other world religions is that our faith is built on things that happened publicly, not privately and are historically recorded within a window of time that makes the claims of Christianity testable, okay? What differentiates Christianity from other world religions is that our faith is built on things that happened publicly, not privately, and are historically recorded within a window of time that makes the claims of Christianity testable. Then another thing that I think is, is worth noting is we have to understand the broader context, right? So whether or not is this ridiculous or, this is, or is this reasonable, the broader context has to be brought into play. Okay, so imagine this. Let's say that, um, that I wanted to go see a sub four minute, 1500 meter run. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna go to a track meet. You're like, what track meet? I'm like, Science Hill, University High, Providence. Like, I wanna, I wanna see a sub four minute, 1500 meter run, right? You might be like, Probably not gonna happen if the context is high school. But what if it's the Olympic trials? If it's the Olympic trials, there's gonna be a lot of sub four minute runs, right? The broader context matters. And so for me, something that we have to mention is that the broader context of the resurrection has to take into consideration the existence of God. And I know that some people are like, Jeff, like just, I don't believe in God. And you're like, you have faith, I don't. Do you know that they've done studies to show what are the mathematical probabilities 
of life just happening, it's, it's a, there's a greater chance, a greater chance of a tornado ripping through a junkyard and then just putting together a perfectly like manufactured, fueled up, ready to fly Boeing 747 than there is of life just happening from non-life. Like, I would say it takes more faith to believe in God's non-existence than it does to believe in God's existence. And so if God is real, then that means that miracles are possible. And I know some people are like, I just don't believe in miracles. Do you know that 44% of Americans say they've experienced something that can only be described as miraculous? 44%. Let's say that 99.9% of those people are wrong. It's like, well, actually, your dog just kind of didn't get hit. Like, I don't know, like, let's just say 99.9% of people are wrong. That's still 1.3 million miracles, okay? And some people are like, Jeff, that's only things that hillbillies from Kentucky believe. That's offensive because my family's from Kentucky. But like, let's, like, like, educated people don't believe in miracles. 55% of physicians say they've experienced things that can only be described as miraculous. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking about the educated, physicians fall into the category of lots of education. Like, I don't think they're just nobody hillbilly, like, don't believe anything. Like, like, all that to say, educated people, too, believe in miraculous things. And so if God is real, and Jesus claimed to be God and was who he said he is, then the broader context lends itself to a greater reasonability that the resurrection truly did happen. Right? And, and maybe you're wondering, like, Jeff, you lost me a long time ago. Like, like you started talking stuff, I just tuned you out. Let me bring it back, okay? Because I know some people love this stuff and you're like, this is great, can I get this on notes? And other people are like, I'm out. Like, I need a gospel. Like let, me, like, let me bring it back, okay? So if I've lost you, can we all come back? Can I get an amen if you're coming back with me? Amen. Yes, that's the loudest we've ever been in this room. All right, so amen. All right, why does this matter, okay? Why is the resurrection so significant if it happened? Flip over to Mark chapter six. Flip over to Mark, or Mark 16, sorry. Mark chapter 16. Remember, 16 somewhere in the Bible will get you close. Mark chapter 16. I wanna read just seven verses for us. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. All right, I love verse seven. In, in my Bible, I've written down the Peter nod. And on a little sticky note in my, on my desk, I have this written down, the Peter nod. Why does Peter get the nod here? Like, go tell the disciples and Peter, right? When you think about it, why does Peter get the nod? Because if you were to back up a few days, 
Peter failed in the biggest way possible. He spent his life with Jesus acting heroic, acting like he would never leave Jesus' side, acting like he would die by Jesus' side if necessary. But when Jesus was betrayed and when Jesus was heading towards the cross, Peter denied him three times. He was a coward who cowered to a little girl who was like, weren't you one of his disciples? He's like, no, I don't know who the guy is you're talking about. He was a coward, right? Now, if Peter, failing Jesus in the biggest way, finds out that Jesus really is God, that he came back to life, what is Peter thinking? He's gotta be thinking that Jesus has to be so disappointed with me. He's gotta be thinking that I'm the, I'm the biggest failure in the world. He's got to be thinking if Jesus is building a team to push his kingdom forward, that with the way that I've acted, there's no way I'm on the team. I'm probably like a film guy or a water boy. Like I'm collecting towels. Like he's not, he's got to be done with me. But Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Jesus wants Peter to know that there is no sin, no shortcoming, nothing that he could do that could out sin or become bigger than the love of the cross. He wants Peter to know that his grace is more than sufficient for him. He wants Peter to know that his guilt and shame has been carried away. And so here's why the resurrection is so important to know, okay? When we know that no sin is bigger than the love of Christ, and the transforming power of the resurrection, we begin to see how Jesus changes everything. I mean, think about it. Peter was changed when his guilt and shame was taken away. The disciples were changed when they were transformed from cowards to courageous. We see that Jesus's love, like I want you to hear this, okay? If, if, if marriages are falling apart, but the power of the resurrection is true and given to us, then the power of the resurrection can restore marriages. It can break addictions. It can heal wounded hearts. It can remove your guilt and your shame. It can comfort the lonely. It can fulfill your deepest desires and longings for acceptance, for significance, for security, and for purpose. The love of Christ calls Jesus's followers not sinners, but saints, beloved children of God. You see, the love of Christ has been changing the world for 2,000 years, and its transforming power is not about to stop today. So if you are here today, I want you to hear that the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection is aimed at you to change your life for the better. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, my marriage is on the rocks and there's no hope, I'm telling you that if Jesus walked out of the grave, there is hope for your marriage. If you're sitting here saying, I've got an addiction that's destroying my life, I'm losing my family. I'm losing the ones I love because I can't shake this habit. It's holding me. I'm slave to it. I'm telling you, if the tomb is empty and the resurrection is true, there is power to break your addiction. If you're sitting here feeling like you have failed more than I could ever understand, Jeff, you don't know what I did when I was in high school. You don't know what I did when I was in college. You don't know what I did in this relationship, God. You don't know what I've done with my body. You, don't, you fill in the blank. I'm telling you, there is no sin that is bigger than the grace of Christ. If the tomb is empty, that guilt and that shame is gonna be carried away forever and always. Right, The transforming power of the gospel is for you today. So if the tomb is empty, 
where you need power, where you need grace, where you need the love of Christ, it is yours. It is yours to hold on to. It is yours to experience. This is good news. This is good news because he is risen, he is alive, and he is changing the world. He wants to change your life today, and he wants to use your life to change the world that we're in tomorrow and forevermore. God is changing things until he comes again, and that's what we're here to do. God, thank you for your word. We want to be a people who experience your power. God, we want to be a people who who know that you rose from the dead, not because we have the most sufficient evidence of historical facts, but because we're people who've experienced life change ourselves. God, I want us to be a church that says, yes, there are facts. Yes, there is evidence. But my best testimony is how you've changed me. God, I'm a a standing picture of how your love and your grace has transformed someone who should have just been good for a bullet in the army and you've completely changed my life. And God, you were changing all of us. And God, we are standing testimonies to that power. So God, let us know it in a deeper way. Let us know your love in a deeper way. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.